0: Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's show, we continue looking at the coronavirus pandemic by shifting our focus from the United States to Scandinavia. There's a sharp contrast in policy between Norway, Finland and Denmark, where isolation and quarantine are in effect, as compared to Sweden, where the economy is open. And the death rate is much higher. Our guest, Mike Seltzer, is in Norway. He says learning from the experience of Scandinavia is instructive for the United States as, for example, Georgia opens up for business while others stay locked down. We asked Mike to look at the history and politics behind these different approaches. We then turned to the U.S. and look at the American South with Mike Goldfield, who's just published book, The Southern Key, Class and Race and Radicalism in the 1930s and 40s argues that the experience and failure of organizing the working class in the south holds the key or at least explains the origins of the current state of the united states and the world and that the defeats from that time closed off the possibilities for meaningful class and anti-racist politics as well as for a successful labor movement for decades to come all this when our program returns in just a moment Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very, very pleased to have Michael Seltzer with us. Mike is a professor emeritus at Oslo Metropolitan University. That's in Norway. He's also a cultural anthropologist. He went to Norway way back in the 1960s, working in the engine room of a Norwegian freighter, and then I guess, liked it or the political situation in the U.S. was such that he moved there in 1975 and has lived there ever since. And he's also a former Teamster of Local 41. And he's joining us today to provide a comparative look at the way the various Scandinavian countries are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Because Mike thinks that it'll be instructive for us in the United States to see how what is taking taken place in Northern Europe may represent what might take place in the United States, both in a good way, as in Norway, Denmark, and Finland, in the states where the lockdown uh, stays in place, and, of course, on the bad side, as in Sweden, in those states like Georgia, where the non-lockdown folks are getting their way. Now, of course, the extraordinary development today on the coronavirus front is the rising pressure here in the United States, just to do what I just said, and it's coming from uh, diverse sources to end the lockdown and quarantine and open up the economy for business. One of the central sources for arguing in favor of this is in fact using the experience of Sweden, which is supposedly an exemplar of Western scientific rationality. And that's because in Sweden, the government has not shut down businesses and has denied the reasoning of what has been in practice everywhere. So first, welcome, Mike. And then can you maybe outline the policies put in place in Norway, Denmark, and Finland and talk about the result and then get into Sweden?
1: Thank you for having me, Susie. I hope sometimes you'll you'll get me not in the wake of a disaster. But uh, to briefly summarize, more or less uh, March 11th, March 12th, Norway, Denmark, and Finland all went to total lockdown, which meant what you're doing, I think, in California now, people, except in essential occupations, healthcare, transport, Grocery stores, drug stores, the latter two were to be kept open. Of course, all the hospitals and clinics, ambulances, the trucks were to keep going. And everyone else was to stay home. We were locked down. We were to stay home. And what's happened is the curve in all three countries has more or less been the same each day since that time the the number of hospital admissions has gone up and then it reached a point and then they've been going down and down and down steadily since that time and as a result last monday all the kindergartens in norway opened because all the schools and universities have been closed down that was part of the lockdown All the the kindergartens opened. The money that's coming now, the first four grades of elementary school in Norway will be opened. They're doing the same in Denmark. They're more or less following the same, the kindergartens and then the the primary grades in the school. And uh, it's big news today. Next week on Monday in the following week, let's say, nine days from now, all the hairdressers will be open. And the Norwegian authorities are saying two things. You have to wash your hair before you go. Uh, so most, wash
0: it with Clorox?
1: <laughs> no, no. the Usual shampoo, because they won't be doing shampoos. And you have to make an appointment so that you don't get uh, barbershops and uh, hairdressers filled with customers, all you know, that what, what can happen? And uh, as it looks, with well, the Norwegian authorities, they say things will not be getting back to normal, but by midsummers, which is a, a big time here in Scandinavia, because you I think you've been here, Susie, that's the, <laughs> the sun never goes down. And usually people have celebrations, but there's not going to be celebrations this year. But things will be more or less going back to normal. But Norwegians, the month of July is the common vacation here. You get four weeks. And the authorities are saying, spend your vacation in Norway. Also because those foreign tourists are not going to be coming. On those big cruise ships, no, that, there's not going to be any of that, which will make a lot of some people happy. In the, you know, if you live in a fjord and then you look out the window and there's a eight-story cruise ship in front of you, but in terms of money, the, it's going to help the tourist industry, which has really been hard hit. This is
0: really kind of crazy, though, in a way, because it's uh, it's interesting because it sounds like Norway and you say Denmark, too, are trying to do a kind of what midway between what Sweden is doing and and the rest of the world. So obviously, this is uh, uh, given what we know so far about the virus and the fact that, you know, there's more than one round that we expect of it in this pandemic, that this may prove to be premature.
1: That's a big issue being debated here, you know, whether this is just the first wave or the second wave. But they make a big point of the decisions are being made by a broad coalition of medical personnel, researchers, and in the last instance, then the government, which is brought in to implement things. But the big emphasis here is on the word broad Yeah, yeah, a broad coalition. It's a way of kicking our neighbor to the east. I'm not speaking of Russia, which is a neighbor to the east of North, but our big neighbor to the east, which of course our borders are closed, as is Denmark's and as Finland. Yeah, Norwegians yeah. returning, they're allowed to come in, but other people are not, and. Some Norwegians who have snuck over the border and then come back have been told they have to quarantine themselves 14 days.
0: Right, Mike. Let's seltzer, Let's move a little bit because this is incredibly interesting. And you and you just said the sure. I guess one key part of it is that the borders are closed, and they're even if they open it up you know, in the summer, it's going to be Norwegians vacationing, not others. So that it'll be interesting to see how this comes out. And then obviously uh, we want to move to Sweden because that example, you know, is extremely important because they are putting forward themselves and is as the example uh for those places that want to lift the quarantine and reboot the economy so i want to go into um that and also you just mentioned that denmark you know which now we know because of a famous uh, <laughs> swedish danish series on the bridge they're actually joined by a bridge did they close the bridge and maybe you could talk a little bit about then just moving into what's happening in sweden
1: oh, i'm sure the bridge is closed Well, we have our bridge, our main bridge that connects our main border with Sweden is over a long bridge, and it's closed. This is important for your listeners.
0: Yeah.
1: There's 5 million Norwegians. Population of Sweden is 10 million. So it's it's twice as big as Norway. As of today, 201 Norwegians have died. Mm. In Sweden, as of today... 2,192 Swedes have died with their policy. The last week, there have been 6,744 reported cases of the coronavirus in Sweden. Uh, In Norway, in the same period, there were 488. But now we'll get back to Sweden because when the Norwegians, there's a lot of kind of language games going on. When the Norwegians are saying we've had this really broad broad coalition deciding on the policy about the coronavirus, it's kind of a cute academic way of saying we realize that in Sweden there's there's basically one person who is responsible. (laughs)
0: Well, and then what, let's go into that. Like, who's behind the arguments of keeping Sweden open, even where they're saying that they're making slight, you know, accommodations to social distancing? And-
1: I'm glad you said that, because tonight in the Norwegian news, there was a picture of people in nightlife, and because it's really beautiful weather in Sweden now, nightlife in Stockholm, and people sitting outside, clustered around tables and drinking, and contrast to us. Well, here's what's been going on in Sweden. The protégé of the former state epidemiologist is a fellow named Anders Tegnell. Anders was a mathematician who then became a doctor. Well, in many ways Anders Tegnell is the ultimate bean counter. Each day, two o'clock, Swedish, they have a press conference, Unlike the press conferences you get to see in the United States, uh, Honest Tignell will be there, and then there'll be some people from this, the social departments, and there'll be some people from various departments. There's usually four or five, stadiums, and Honest Tignell will present. And it's, he's presenting death figures, and hospital admission figures, and the number of people on respirators. But it's all numbers. And he's he's really good with the, you know, he's, he's a number guy. And in fact, with apologies to Hannah Arendt, every time I watch him, I think, this is the evil of banality. He's the bean counter. He only deals in numbers. Now, I did some, because uh, I wanted to tell your your listeners some important things. So I, so I went back and I checked the chronology of Anders Tegnell. And what I found was, interestingly enough, in some ways it parallels that of Donald Trump. Because in February, he was saying, uh, well, there was this kind of thing going on in China, but it really wasn't going to affect Sweden very much. Then on the 8th of February, and this is very important, My translation of the Swedish is pretty good here, so I'll give it when I say it's in quotes. When asked if Swedes could go skiing in Italy, this is the 8th of February, he responded, quote, with regard to this kind of travel, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. The interesting thing is the ski resorts in Austria and Italy, where they came together, that's where a big source of the infections the coronavirus infections came to Norway from people who had been skiing. Okay, on the 6th of March, one month later, Anders Tegnell told the Swedish newspaper, Oftenbra that there was 137 Swedes who had been infected, but he felt that was the zenith of the curve. That was the top of the curve. And then he added, quote, and this I thought of Trump, Viruses do not thrive well during the summer months. So, okay.
0: We're, of course, we're seeing the viruses definitely uh, active in tropical countries.
1: Yeah, of course. Then on the 15th of March, let's go to Hop to the 16th, because that is the day that Boris Johnson in England and his medical advisors begin to talk about the notion of herd immunity. That was going to be their policy. And Tegnell, that evening, on a show on Swedish television called Agenda, Agenda, he says, and I quote, I listen to the British because they are the best in the world when it comes to fighting infections. Wow. The next day, the Imperial College in London came out and said, No, this this herd immunity idea is very bad. And to quote their report, epidemic suppression is the only viable strategy at this current time. And that's what Danes, Finns, and Norwegians did. But that evening, on another television show in Sweden, there was Tegnell together with a young doctor. And the young doctor had the guts To challenge Tegnell and say, Well, he just read a letter by about 30 uh, scientists and doctors in Britain published in The Guardian that day saying that the herd immunity idea was disastrous. And Tegnell (laughs) brushed him off and said he knew brilliant scientists in Britain who support his policy of keeping everything open. This is the whole point. This last week, I don't know, well, you all are in lockdown. You're watching a lot of television. (laughs) And I thought one thing I should tell your listeners is uh, I I was never aware that from 1940 to 1945, when Norway was occupied by (laughs) hundreds of thousands of Germans, Swedes were busy selling the iron ore from Karuna to the Germans. And Sweden was neutral. Mm. And a lot of people have brought this up. Finland was invaded once. Finland was involved in fighting for five years. Denmark, of course, was occupied as we were. Sweden was not. And one thing, as I'm watching uh, Swedish television, they're showing these films that were made in 41, 42, 43, 44. They're all light comedies. This is taking place while almost all the Jews in Norway were put on a ship and taken to Auschwitz and murdered. And the Swedes, are they have these light comedies. It's, it's generally, the, it's the petty bourgeois and the serving girl that married the, the son and romances and humorous uh, innuendos and in a way, it's kind of replicating what we're seeing in Sweden today. Sweden this evening, everybody out enjoying themselves. The Swedish schools being held open. And one thing that, is, that I've tried to point out to some of my political friends is one out of every five students in the, from first grade up to high school, they go to private schools not public schools like we do in Norway. So there's a lot of money involved. Since There's two corporations that run quite a few of the schools. And, of course, the restaurants are staying open. So the restaurant owners and, of course, the people that work there, they're happy. The bars are staying open. And the Swedes are making things. They're saying things like no more than 50 people should be gathered at one time. Yeah, I wanted to
0: come in just for a second, you know, there, Mike Seltzer, because this is just incredible. And the way that you're sort of setting it up, it becomes pretty obvious. The reasons... I was going to ask that question, why, you know, is Sweden doing this? And, you know, I did get to see one interview with Tegnell and they asked him, you know, how it's going in Sweden. He said, it's going, everything's going well, except the death rate. And that was like a a stark admission, of course. And yet, you know, you've just laid out, the explanation, which is obviously about you know the economy, and of course we've seen now in the United States by certain retrograde you know lieutenant governor of Texas and in Georgia and other places where uh, they've suggested that well this is mainly going to hit the elderly and maybe we should just let them die there you know it's better not to sacrifice the economy for the elderly and it I want to kind of go back to your. Uh, characterization in a way of Tegnell, because you show him as a bean counter in charge of this policy, but it's very clearly that he's got the sort of same, shall we say, I don't know, neoliberal outlook that, you know, would put that in the prime place. And of course, you sent me an article that highlighted the sort of quasi-eugenicist arguments that you know I think that 's the reason you 're alluding to Sweden in the 40s, and of course it it has a connection right here in the United States as well and I 'm talking about uh, Ezekiel Emanuel, the bioethicist who is a, a prominent advisor to Obama in formulating the ACA the Affordable Care Act, and now is an advisor to Biden on the coronavirus. So that's I threw too much in there, but I thought it would give you a sort of you know opening to talk about where you think these policies come from in Sweden and to trace it.
1: Well, the one thing that is shared in terms of you can call them mortality patterns in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland is the majority of people dying are in homes for the elderly. Now I'm somebody who knows a lot about total institutions, and in total institutions. There are things like meningitis at army camps. I'm sure, and I've seen some statistics in the states, prisons. You know, when all activities, eating, sleeping, and working, are carried out under one roof by people who are confined, it's a beautiful breeding ground for any kind of bacterial infection, viral infection, and if it's people who are elderly with maybe with not the same kind of uh, immune system that uh, younger people have, they are at risk. And of course, Tignell, when he's doing his death counts, he will say, yeah, it is bad. In fact, a few weeks ago, they said perhaps people from outside should not visit the elderly in their but this is the whole thing with Sweden. They kind of uh, look down our nose, at the Norwegians, because we, we punish people who, like, break the quarantine. You know, they get a big fine. And No, in Sweden, we give them a counsel and we let them do these things voluntarily. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like we're, we're, we're so rational, we Swedes but i watch him every day it's like the someone wrote once in vietnam where they had the five o'clock follies where the where the newspaper men would would hear about body counts which were lies of course but here i was thinking it's the two o'clock follies every day we all switch on sweden and there's thing and he's up first and he's he's got his graphs and uh He's been waiting for the plateau to be reached, but the plateau is not being reached, and people are dying. And they're dying at 10 times the rate that they're dying, the difference between 200 and 2,000. These are people, and and I I think as I wrote to some people, back in the 20s, eugenics was very big in Sweden. It was very big in Norway as well. And, of course, in the U.S. And, and I said the, the first the first institute of so-called race hygiene was set up by the Swedish government in the 1920s. And a lot of the Germans, Mengele wasn't there, but a lot of the people that taught him, they did their little studies. They went up to Sweden and then went back to Germany and then started this idea of... I don't want to use the German word, but lives not worthy of living. Right. Uh, and as, as you as you probably know, as a historian, you know, the 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 Germans were prepared for this by uh, films were shown of inmates at, at homes for the mentally retarded and so forth. And then a big sign came up: this this person cost so much, so many marks. Uh, You know, and this group cost so many marks, and then this was getting them ready. And I think when we watched Tegnell, you know, I did start thinking of Eichmann. But I said, you saw Tegnell on television, and I think, yeah, the the evil of (laughs) banality...
0: do you see because you're you're going into this so do you think that this is a kind of modernized version death for the elderly their lives are less important they've lived their lives um, that this is behind this sort of you know let's the economy is more important than human life that's
1: a hard thing to say i'm sure technology has grandparents and but I, but you know i think it's uh, it's a very rationalist idea. And, you know, Ezekiel, uh, Emmanuel, when he wrote that big article in, in, in The Atlantic, You know, it would say, well, you know, you're, you're 75 and you, like you've done your life and you've done your thing. And then you're kind, of, you're kind of a burden on the family, but understated your burden on the economy. And it always bothered me that he was the man that, one of the few doctors that, Obama listened to when he was planning,
0: no doubt because you know, of his Obama. brother Rom. And it's also quite, you know, I guess this is the reason that I brought it up because we're going to have to end in a minute, and I just thought it was, you know, quite important to bring that up too because he's now an advisor to Biden on the coronavirus, and you know, it's kind of an irony, uh, Biden, who is the presumptive nominee, <laughs> seven years old, so he's part of that elderly past. year. what's the word use <laughs> that. Of this article in the Atlantic. So we're talking about Ezekiel Emanuel, the bioethicist who's arguing essentially that, you know, after 75, you're more of a burden than a uh, than anything else on society. And and it may not be deliberate. And I'm uh, not putting this forward as deliberate. But Mike Seltzer just looks like in Sweden and other places, maybe in Georgia, uh, where they're really, you know, rushing to to reboot the economy. And say that that's the important thing—that there's an underlying, let's call it what, a prejudice or eugenicist bent. Would you see it that way?
1: Yeah, for those of us who've looked at the history of race hygiene, in Sweden no. also in Norway. But can I say one final thing? Yeah. When I see the people demonstrating in the U.S. to open up, the the one variable that we haven't taken up here is. Even Sweden, but Norway, Denmark, and Finland, we have social democratic governments. You're unemployed here. You're get you're getting your unemployment. There's been funds that have been set up. We're very special because we have a lot of oil money, but we're, there's funds that are being set up to keep businesses going. Not that the businesses aren't allowed to run, but they're not going to go bankrupt because the, there's funds. But workers. I can understand the workers that you see demonstrating, you know, because this idea of what you're going to get a check for $1,200. By, by my estimate, a family of four, how, how much food is that going to buy them for maybe two weeks? A lot of rice and beans. But when that's gone, then what? Right. And you, you see the long lines on the television of the cars at the food banks. Right. Well, what happens when you don't have the money to put the gas
0: in your car? And those food banks are charities. This is not the state Providing. Of
1: course, of course, they're charities. I mean, it's here. People are I mean, most of my neighbors, I live in a, a big block of apartments. Most of my neighbors, they're not working now, but they're getting there. Nobody's going to starve to death. Nobody's going to turn off your water, your electricity. This is the same in Denmark, Finland.
0: I think we're going to, we've just about run out of time, Mike Seltzer, but obviously this is an incredibly important issue. And I'm glad we ended, you know, just on that basis because the other part of that is that anybody who does get sick in any part of Scandinavia can rely on a healthcare system that will not exclude them. Although even now, Trump is even saying that those with coronavirus will be treated regardless of cost. It's an opening here in the United States, but we're in a very much worse position because we're not getting the kind of income supports uh, for both uh, businesses, small businesses and individuals that they're getting in Scandinavia. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean, as you've said, Mike Seltzer, that the most intelligent policies have been put in place with regard to reopening the economy. But we've run out of time. And I want to thank you so much for your insights and actual reporting on what's going on throughout uh Scandinavia and the very different policies put in place in places like Norway, where you are, and Denmark and Finland, as compared to Sweden, where things are pretty much open for business. Thanks for joining us, Mike, and thanks for staying up as well. Mike is a yeah. professor emeritus at Oslo Metropolitan University. He's a cultural anthropologist. He's been in Norway for more than 40 years, and he's a former Teamster from Kansas, right? Kansas City. Kansas City, and there you go. Thanks for joining <laughs> us today on the show, Mike Seltzer. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about labor organizing in the South. And, of course, this is a really important issue For right now, because as we watch the uh, unfolding of this pandemic, what we're seeing is that for the most part, those sectors of the United States that are itching to reboot the economy and get it going, including Georgia, but also in the other places, as we saw in the last segment where I talked about uh, the economy was more important than the elderly's uh, lives, that, you know, this sort of attitude that discounts the quality of of human life over a sort of symbolic notion of what the economy is, is all taking place in the South. And that's also where we see the sort of um, center of reaction in the United States in the attack on, you know, the war on women, the war on gays, the war on, we see fundamentalism and in every other way. So I think this is going to be a great place to go and look at some of the origins of that with Michael Goldfield. He's got a brand new book out called The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s, just published by Oxford University Press, and it's a very meaty but Rewarding read and I highly recommend that you get it. Mike is a professor emeritus of political science And he's currently a research fellow at the Fraser Center for Workplace Issues at Wayne State University Where labor studies got its start, I think he's the author of a lot of other books and articles And has had a lengthy career also as a labor agitator and organizer in a variety of industries Including nine years as an assembly line worker at international harvester in Chicago Welcome to Jacobin Radio, Mike Goldfield.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you very much. I'm really pleased. So let's just jump into, you know, I began with this um sort of introduction of why the South is an outlier on so many issues. And I think your book takes us right back into the relevant history. And in that, you argue that the political economic evolution of the South has been the key to determining the peculiar nature of the United States as a whole, not just its politics, but, you know, in terms of its history and economics as well. And the that peculiarity, as you see it correctly, I think, is in looking at the political weakness of the working class. And that's manifested in the lack of working class political party, as, you know, you say in your books and articles, as compared to elsewhere. And also in the weakness of the U.S. welfare state, or let's call it a, um, you know, social safety net. And it's your argument that working class political weakness, that comes down to the weakness of the labor movement of working class organization and trade union organization and you say in turn that it's the weakness of the trade union organization and politics more generally in the south that has been responsible for the weakness nationally and so for this reason you conclude mike goldfield that uh, the failure of organizing in the south has been the key to the weakness of the united states in other words that's what the key is the southern key and it could. If there were a turnaround there, it would make all the difference in the world. And so you focus on the important period, the 30s and the 40s. So let's just begin with that, not to put, I guess, too fine of a point on it. Your argument is that racism has been the key barrier to class organization in the politics in the South. So a key problem to overcome that has been how to confront the racism. And then, you know, as it was in this period, Jim Crow. So with all of that... You have the floor, Mike Goldfield.
2: Yeah, so my my overall argument is that there's really two things that determine the characteristics of the South. One, which everybody focuses on, is the legacy of slavery, which um, leads to the South being the center of death penalty executions, the lowest levels of support, health care children children in need um, and everything else. But the other thing where the potential for the South being transformed was in the 1930s and 1940s. And surprisingly, most people think that unions were unsuccessful, but there were half a dozen industries where unions successfully organized, starting with the coal miners, who particularly in, in Alabama and in West Virginia, which is something of the South. There were large numbers of African-American workers, and the unions were interracial unions with a great deal of solidarity between blacks and whites. So across the South, steel workers organized, metal miners organized, longshoremen in the Gulf ports from, from, from New Orleans and Savannah, Georgia, South Carolina, Charleston, all organized. And these are still important ports in the United States today. And in the places where unions were most successful, the politics of those areas changed. And one thing I highlight is Alabama. Alabama, not only coal miners and steel workers, but industries across the state and coal miners were really critical. So by 1946, Alabama was 26% unionized, a higher percentage of union members to put this in perspective than exists in any state in the United States today. I just want to jump
0: in for one second and say, you know, just kind of underscore like the shock of that for most people, they think of, you know, there's the U S and then there's, you know, Alabama and Mississippi, and they're always thought of, you know, as the kind of what the bastion of reaction. And so you're saying that in this period that Alabama was a real exception. Well, It it was still a bastion of reaction, but the labor movement was
2: strong enough to transform the politics, uh, at least partially, for a couple decades. So the CIO, the industrial union movement, was a big supporter of someone who was elected governor, Big Jim Folsom. And Folsom said that um, there shouldn't be any poll tax, that African-Americans should have the franchise that his... Uh, rallies that he had were interracial, and he was overwhelmingly elected in '46 and even in '54. And they passed very progressive um, worker safety legislation in the state and a number of other things. They put a lot of money into hospitals and the University of Alabama, etc. And The strength of the labor movement, particularly the coal miners, meant that workers who were difficult to organize in other industries in other parts of the South were organized in Alabama. Very strong labor movement, somewhat progressive, um, contradictory to be sure. But the nation, for example, in 1946, said that Alabama, a deep South former center of slavery, was the most liberal state in the South. And the potential for the South being transformed existed, I argue, in the the book. And other states had beachheads of this sort of thing. In in Louisiana, the labor movement was somewhat strong. The long machine, a contradictory machine, got a lot of support from the labor movement. They integrated some of the universities in the late 50s in a way that didn't happen in other southern states. We have some glimmerings of potential, uh, and if the labor movement had been more successful, and the South had been organized, the South potentially could have been transformed, and with that, the country as a whole. And just to just to give a perspective in terms of what you said before, the South is people say backwards, but the reactionary attitudes that flow from the lack of unionization are all over the place so for example uh where you are in california just a couple percentage of the people when when polled are birthers in other words say that um barack obama was born in africa not in the united states in some states in the south a majority of whites believe that he was not born in the united states and this is and and these attitudes are contrary to any type of evidence Why would you have such attitudes? You have to be open to racist arguments. And it's these attitudes of whites that, after the defeat of labor unions, starting in the late 1950s, early 1960s, the Republican Party turned from being, you know, wishy-washy on civil rights to appealing to racist whites in the South. This starts with Barry Goldwater, goes through... um, Nixon, who invented uh, the Southern strategy and the name for, name for it. Reagan, who's getting all these kind words these days, and George W. Bush continued this. And you can really draw a straight line from these attitudes and perspectives up to Trump. So Trump, while he certainly got his peculiarities, is nothing new in this attempt to appeal to backward racial attitudes of whites in the South. And this also explains a lot of where we are today, right, as you said in your introduction.
0: One thing I was going to ask you before we go into sort of the way that racism and Jim Crow, you know, presents itself uh, in the union organizing struggles that you go through in your book, The Southern Key. Um, is You know, you just mentioned the exception of Alabama. And, of course, the exception were with coal miners. And throughout the world, miners are always you know, in the vanguard of class struggle. It's the peculiar conditions of mining and elsewhere. And so maybe that's a little bit less of a surprise. I don't know if it is. And of course, we've seen, uh, you know, Salt of the Earth, that wonderful uh, film that, you know, sort of uh, is about that. But I just wondered, because the other side of what we know about uh, the South and the difficulties of organizing is a very different position, let's say, for textile workers. But can you go through perhaps uh, looking at uh, the objective conditions that you say in the South were favorable enough for organizing in the 30s and 40s? And you give example like Birmingham, uh, and we know that even later. So, you know, how did Jim Crow and racism play into even, you know, the CIO attempts to organize the South?
2: So, we had s- several different things going going on. The coal miners, one thing I talk about in the book is the type of leverage that different groups of workers have. Coal miners had a lot of leverage. So if, if you're a coal miner, you're with a group of people, you're using dynamite to blow up coal, you're building structures to keep from caving in, nobody in their right mind goes down to a, into a coal mine several thousand feet below the surface without knowing what they're doing. So when all the coal miners in the country struck, as often happened, there was no way that they could get replacement workers scabs to mine the coal. And so even during World War II, when the government seized the coal mines, coal miners had signs that says you can't mine coal with bayonets. And it was true. Mm. On the other hand, textile workers, and we can see this today in the modern world, textile is a low capital, low skill industry you can train people textile workers in a matter of weeks and bring them up to speed and it's also very movable so if the wages are too high from the point of view of owners they move it and so virtually all textile except for you know very fancy stuff left this country in the last few decades and initially for a while it was in china but even in China now, wages are too high for textile owners. And so we see it in Bangladesh and Vietnam uh, and Indonesia and other countries where the wage levels are lower. So the lesson that one draws from that, if you're in an industry that doesn't have a lot of structural power, then you better have a lot of allies to help you. And so we can see that in some of the successful struggles in the South in the past couple of decades. So One place I look at is Mississippi. So Mississippi, um, in the past few decades, is a center for catfish farming. Catfish used to be this junk food, garbage food that people wouldn't eat. And eventually it became a delicacy and was grown in catfish farms. Many of these farms in Mississippi have as many as 1,000 workers in them. And what happened is, in order to mobilize, and these are overwhelmingly African-American workers, So in order to mobilize, they mobilized their whole communities, um, broad coalitions of people to shut down the catfish farms and to gain lots of support and publicity. And they were successful in unionizing in the 80s and 90s catfish farms in Mississippi. So if you're in an industry where you don't have a lot of leverage, then you need much broader support in order to be successful, and that's something that most of the uh, labor leaders in today's unions don't seem to understand. They go to organize, they hand out cards and hope that people will support them, whereas the companies have broad support in terms of attacking them. So this difference of having what I call associative power, and during the 1930s, And the the unique thing about the 1930s and the 1940s is there were millions of uh, people in unemployed organizations who both fought in their own communities against evictions uh, for for more uh, social welfare support, but they also came to the aid of workers in strikes in large numbers. So workers in many places, including in Detroit, were able to count on large numbers of workers from unemployed organizations to bolster their ranks and it wasn't just um, the unemployed farmers in many places united and provided food for strikers in a much more organized fashion than we see taking place today people need food farmers aren't organized to um, give people food so nobody's doing it and we see While people are going hungry, we see farmers having to destroy food because there's no way to get it to the people who need it.
0: Can we just step back for a minute Mike because I in a way I I um you, you got forward to the kind of successful union organizing drives let's say in the 70s and 80s and and beyond but I want to go back to you know what allowed for that to happen and you raised the issue of the workers that have leverage we call it the workers who have social weight and nowadays we call about the workers who are essential because that's changed a lot uh in this era of the corona pandemic when the essential workers are you know the the delivery, the warehousemen and women, the drivers, the grocery store workers, and all of that. But it's in in this period, we're talking about, like you gave the example of Alabama and the coal workers versus elsewhere. And I just wanted to go back, you know, because we started to talk about the role of race, to you know, the internal politics of the CIO, which you do go into there in terms of the ultimate. Failure or success. And this leads us into, you know, a really huge question about why it failed in the South to take hold and the consequences, you know, that that we're still paying today for that.
2: Yeah, so so most of the unions that were successful at organizing interrationally were left-wing unions. They mobilized broad support, as I indicated, and they also put race issues at the forefront. They didn't bury them. And one of the things that happened. Uh, with more conservative leaders in the CIO, people we would call liberals, is that they tried to bury the race issue. They were afraid to organize black workers because they thought that perhaps they, they would be alienated white workers. They kowtowed to racist politicians in the South rather than confront them directly. And this ended up being a losing strategy. And you see this today with people saying, well, let's just talk about class issues and not raise questions of, of, of racial oppression and racial discrimination and that sort of thing. So the mine workers, which were one of the few non-left-wing unions, they had it in their constitution that if you were a member of the Ku Klux Klan, you were out of the union. It was incompatible to be a Klan member and to be a union member. And this was in Alabama, Tennessee throughout the Deep South, as well as in the in the North and the West. So Operation Dixie, which was the attempt by the uh, Industrial Union Movement after World War II, after they'd been successful across basic industries around the country to confront the South, were unwilling to challenge racism of whites. They kicked out all the left-wing organizers who had been so successful in the 1930s and 1940s and they, they refused to take any allies and even liberal groups in the South. And they, were, they failed abysmally. And it's their heritage that we see today in the labor movement, in, in most parts of the labor movement, the, the inability to organize and not even knowing how uh, you can organize workers. And there are some exceptions. I would say that Justice for Janitors, which was centered in your own area in L.A., was an exception in terms of mobilizing people um, and also gaining a lot of allies when they didn't have didn't have a lot of leverage i mean janitors are not somebody who when they stop work like coal miners the country's energy main source of energy during the 1930s disappears it just means that the buildings aren't clean and maybe they can even get replacement workers so they had to mobilize a lot of support. Big picket lines to keep people from entering the buildings and whatnot. But aside from some of these exceptions, we see very narrow approaches to organizing throughout most of the union movement. And I would make a contrast, for example, the auto workers, the United Auto Workers, of which I was a member for 10 years, long time ago, uh, before I went back to school has failed pretty abysmally in the past few years. Uh, they failed in yeah. Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they even failed more recently last year in Mississippi in a, in a plant that was uh, 50%
0: African-American. Um, and if I could just step in right, right before you finish that sentence, just for our listeners, because what we've seen, you know, since the revitalization, let's say, of manufacturing in the South um, is that companies like Boeing and Volkswagen and others are uh, uh, foreign manufacturers are going to the South just precisely because there's no organization of labor or there's very little organization of labor. And in the case that you mentioned in Chattanooga, the union drive, you know, could have been successful, but even the governor stepped in and said, not in my state, we're not going to allow, you know, we have right to work state.
2: Right. right. And so, so this happened in Chattanooga and it also happened in Mississippi. But interestingly in 1946, when Mississippi was absolutely white supremacist, upfront and reactionary uh in laurel mississippi which was the center of the u.s and world plywood industry plywood so what is an important industry in the south is important because pine un- unlike hardwood in the northwest is a renewable product in another 20 years you can have big pine trees so you can keep harvesting pine trees so laurel mississippi is a town where they make plywood. And the major plywood plant, which had several thousand workers, mostly white, the CIO came in to organize the racist governor, senator, Senator Bilbo, the congressman from the area, Rankin. These were open racists in the Senate and Congress came into town campaign and it didn't make any difference. The majority of white workers voted for the union. The union had clear things to offer people, higher pay, safer conditions, whereas when we see what took place in Chattanooga, it's not clear what the union had to offer. They had been made so many concessions in terms of the big three, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, that it wasn't clear that they would even bring anything um, better to the workers in that plant. So part of it is what you have to offer. And what tactics? And they also promised they wouldn't strike. So how are workers going to get leverage if they don't if they if they're not able to strike? So we see that, and the UAW is often considered a um, liberal, progressive union, but they're as bad as any in terms of their ability and willingness to do what's needed to do to organize. On a more hopeful note, so.
0: I was just going to say we could, because we have about 3 or 4 minutes left and I want to jump from there to now because we've seen the catastrophic results of and I would love to hear in your response a little bit about what you thought they might have been able to do differently but we're living with those results today in terms of the reactionary nature of these states and 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 how dominant they are in defining literally you know what happens in the United States so um go ahead So
2: so we've seen in the past few decades, a dramatic transformation of the working class. Coal is virtually non-existent. Despite the Trump administration's attempts to pump it up, uh, coal miners are going to be a lost breed. But we've also seen a huge decline in retail stores. But in replacement for that, we have a new economy. So we have logistic hubs, basically warehouses and transportation hubs. And these exist in major cities in the South, as well as the New York. So Memphis, Tennessee, which is right at the top of the Mississippi Delta, definitely deep South is a major warehouse hub, delivery, food growing. Suddenly this becomes critical. And we look at distribution um, amazon distribution companies amazon being at the top of the heap and workers have had a great deal of difficulty organizing they've been fired they have terrible positions has been exposed even in the mainstream press because they're so vital in this during this pandemic and it's so clear to all of us how important they are workers are getting more outspoken and it may be that there are more possibilities for Organizing these workers in the new economy. The, the, the other industry, the biggest industry in the country is the healthcare industry. The statistics vary, it depends, but by, by my count, there are 21, 22 million people in the healthcare industry, majority of them female. Um, and there's also a myth that comes from earlier periods that women workers aren't as militant. But as I show in my book, even during the 1930s and textile and other industries, With the large numbers of women, they were at least as militant as the men. So I think that in these critical industries that are growing, the possibilities for new organizing are becoming more likely than they were a year ago.
0: And that's a good place to end it. And I'm sorry, we've run out of time. But Mike Goldfield, congratulations on this really magnificent uh, book. It's called The Southern Key, Class, Race and Radicalism in the 1930s and 40s. And it's highly analytical. And you should uh, pick it up if you want to try to understand literally the nature of politics in the United States, not just in the South. And of course, working class organization Mike Goldfield is a professor emeritus uh, of political science at Wayne State University. He's written a a number of other books, uh, including The Decline of Organized Labor in the U.S. and The Color of Politics. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Mike Goldfield.
2: Susie, it's been my pleasure. Um, Honored to be on your show.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Suzy Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Suzy Wiseman.